I've had it revealed to me quite a bit as a preacher that I have a tendency to be a pessimist. It's funny though, I never really considered myself one. And I guess that most pessimists don't. At least we don't say it out loud. And maybe most pessimists really don't want to admit that they're pessimists. But before you conclude, I want you to consider this. You know, it's the pessimist that says, it just can't get any worse. It's the optimist that says, oh yes it can. So one thing good about being a pessimist is that you don't find many pessimists like me are worriers. See, if a pessimist concludes the worst and they assume the worst, then we don't have a reason to worry. The worst is gonna happen, so I don't worry about it. It's you optimists that worry. In Joseph Telushkin's complete book of Jewish humor, he tells the classic joke of the Jewish mom who once a week would send her children's telegrams and they would begin, dear kids, stop. Start worrying, stop. More later. So I'm not sure about being a pessimist. I'd like to think that I'm optimistically pessimistic. I'm like the engineer who sees the glass as neither half full nor half empty, but it's just twice as big as it needs to be. I called this series the words of the Kohelet because I wanted to trick visitors into coming. If I were to put up there that we were studying through the book of Ecclesiastes, you might think that it was just one long funeral, so you'd leave. The words of the Kohelet is the book of Ecclesiastes. And the reason that I had chosen this, and it didn't hit me uh, until after I was done last week, was we all admit that usually as Adventists, Ecclesiastes is only read when? It's usually only read at funerals. And I thought, if a book could comfort us at a funeral, why couldn't it comfort us every day? And actually, that's what Solomon, I believe, has in mind as our Kohelet. And remember, when I refer to the word Kohelet, it means an assembler of sayings, or the preacher, or the teacher that you'll find in many of your translations, according to the teacher, according to the teacher. And so this week, we come to chapter three, and chapter three begins with probably the most famous words in all of Ecclesiastes, some of the most famous words of the Bible, because these words found their way into modern poems and songs. And I think the reason that these are so popular with everyone else is because they are dead on in a description of living under the sun. Whether we're believers or not, we're all living under the sun. We're all living in the same condition. These words resonate with anybody and everybody. For everything there is a what? There's a season for how much that happens under the sun. Everything. And a time for every matter under heaven. I can tell you that the, this is the first time that Ecclesiastes uh, goes into what we would consider formal poetry. 
I told uh, one of the things about the Kohelet is that he happens to be a master poet. And some of the things that are described about living under the sun, they almost sound appealing because he is a master poet. And especially in, in, in these uh, paired lines, if you hear them in Hebrew, they're, they're very simple. They're, they're seven paired lines. They contain classically in speech what we call the uh, opposition, uh, the what is it? The, um, the attention of opposition. It gets your attention because it goes from opposite to opposite. And they're all just two syllables long. Every word in the poetry. Each line is very short. Only two accented syllables. And to me, this, this compactness, if you will, I guess, is the most profound summary of life under the sun. The poet knows what he's talking about. There's a time to be born and a time to what? And if you think about it, everything else is in between. And that's why it appeals. So I find it very hard, I find it very difficult to expound on this. To me, they're, it's, it, they're their own sermon. So I'll leave you to read them, but I wanna just leave you with a couple of conclusions that were given to me by my dear friend, Walt Groff. He's a senior pastor at Grace Point, had the pleasure and honor of preaching with him, actually through this very series. And he came to some great conclusions that I've always remembered about these, there is a season for everything, there is a time for everything. One is this, when it comes to work, the work that we've been given, the toil that we've been given. Because at the end of the poem, he says, now let's talk about this toil that we all have under the sun. Walt points out to us, Pastor Walt points out to us that it's a gift, this toil. Work is a gift. If nothing else, work is a gift because it gives us something to do. What I find interesting about that is that, of course, Pastor Walt thinks it's a gift, and you would think he'd think it was a gift, too, if you knew his work ethic. He believes that work is a gift, period. If I had Walt's work ethic, I would believe it was, too. But I asked him, I said, what about us inherently lazy people? And actually, it's not the work that's a gift. It's God's gift that all should eat and drink and take pleasure in all their toil. That's the gift. Unfortunately, there are many who toil who take no pleasure in it because they don't get to receive the pleasure of their work. And that is one of the problems of living under the sun. I think that's what the Kohelet is getting at. Especially Solomon, uh, um, the way that he laments on this is, remember, he laments as our collector of sayings, he, as our preacher, as our teacher, but also as a king. And he saw that there were many, many who toiled under the sun and received no what? Received no pleasure. And by the way, many of them worked for him. That's the gift. The gift is if we could receive pleasure. But by the way, if you don't, then Solomon says, we're all in this together. The Kohelet says, we're, we're all here. 
The other that Pastor Walt points out is that the preacher may sound pessimistic. This is what got me thinking about being a pessimist. He sounds down, he sounds morose, but actually he's just stating the facts of having to live under the sun as long as we do. And as I pointed out, I believe that's why these words resonate with songwriters today, resonate with with poets today, resonate with anybody who comes across them. Some people might be shocked to even know that they are in the Bible. It's because it simply describes that it's hard, this toil under the sun, this living between cradle and grave, and what has to happen between cradle and grave. And to point out that as we live under the sun, we can be morose, We don't have to, do we? Have you ever met people that you look at them and you look at their toil and you go, how in the world are you optimistic? In a lot of ways, in a lot of times, it's up to us. And finally, Walt points out to us that Solomon says that basically there's a time for everything. And that's a good thing, isn't it? Imagine if sometimes the time to plant was in June, but the next year it's in December, and the following year it's in October. So the mercy of God looked at the toil that was to happen under the sun, and he said, at least I'll try to make it as consistent as I can. And that's a good thing. So what are we reminded of as we begin to transition to talking about being under the sun? What we are reminded of is who's actually in control. Where we go today is trying to imagine our life under the sun, but not let it fade an image that we have of what can be, of what will be, of what is even a reality, even though we may not be able to experience it ourselves. He's made everything suitable for its time. Moreover, he's put a sense of past and future. He's put a sense of eternity into their minds. You know who he's talking about? He's talking about us, our minds, those who toil under the sun. He's put a sense of past and future, yet they cannot find out what God has done from the beginning and the end. I believe that we know a lot, a ton of what creatures can know, but we still have to come to a conclusion, especially as we toil here under the sun, that we are creatures, and there is knowledge that we don't have, and there is knowledge that we will never have. He is the creator. We are creatures. Toiling under the sun, we have a tendency to forget that. I know that whatever God does endures for how long? Forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done this so that all should stand in awe before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already is. The past is, the, the, the present is already past in God's, in the creator's hands. The present is already past. The future is already here. The creator brings the vision together. 
And God seeks out what has gone by. I love another, the Jewish publication translation where he says, he seeks out that who is pursued. I like that. We pursue. We run back and forth. We search the past in order to find answers for the present. And we look at the present in order to try to find answers for the future. We're constantly in pursuit. And all through it, the one who has control over the past, the present, and the future continues to pursue us. God is indeed in control. And he puts an eternity or a sense of past and future in us. He gives humanity a longing. He didn't leave us to just toil under the sun. There's a longing that he places within us. By the way, it's there whether we can feel it right now or not. The curse of living under the sun is sometimes that longing for humanity can be drowned out. And the Kohelet is assembling words for us to hear so that we could remember this, to carry it through with our journey under the sun. Even though we can't grasp the meaning, he gives us the longing. So I can leave you with another one of Pastor Walt's. In fact, we, we thought at Grace Point we should put this on a bumper sticker you know, with the logo right beside it. He is God, I am not. He is God, we are not. Fact, fact. Problem, only to those of us living under the sun. Something to worry about, something to be morose over. Sometimes we are morose over the fact that he is God and we are not. Because in this condition, in this toil under the sun, our selfishness and our selfish nature, uh, uh, having to admit that we're not creator, not being in control, that's a threat to us. That's a threat to our existence. Which is the problem of living under the sun. The enemy convinced us of that. And we bought it. He told our parents, he knows on the day that you eat of it, you will become like God. He's holding out on you. He doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want you to know what it's like. Your God is selfish. He's the threat to your happiness, not the fruit, not me. The enemy looked at them that day and said, I'm not the threat to happiness. I'm willing to give you everything. I'm willing to give you knowledge that you should not have. Under the sun is hopeless. Under the sun is helplessness. It's the poet's way of pointing out every day the toil that we face. And the toil is of our own doing. It's of humanity's doing. Our nature, our default disposition makes living under the sun utterly futile. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Useless. It's interesting, the word that is used there that that has given translators such a hard time, 
that the King James Version used vanity. There are others that say futility. There is others that say uselessness. The word is a word for breath, but it's a different word for breath than you see anywhere else. It's actually the word that is exhaling. So think about it. Once your breath is exhaled, how long does it exist? What, com- what impact does it make? As a matter of fact, physiologically, anatomically, we know that it is the expelling of waste. And once it's gone, it's gone. But the writer may have had more in mind that in wintertime, when you see someone's breath, how long do you visualize it? How long do you see it? It disappears like that. That's the word that the Kohelet is grasping. It's all gone that quick. It's useless. Vanity, vanity, all is gone. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, wickedness was there. In the place of righteousness, wickedness was there as well. All the places where we to go under the sun to expect to find something that could bless us, to expect to find something that could have us long for eternity, we get there and we find what? We find the opposite. We look for justice in the world and we go to the places that should be giving justice and what do we find? We find corruption, we find wickedness, we find selfishness. We we want righteousness. We want to be right with God. We go to the places that we should find righteousness. And what do we find there as well? Wickedness. You have to remember that that as king, last week I, I named it, I the teacher when king, when the Kohelet was king, he had his hand on both of those as king of Israel. He had his hand on the places where you should be able to find justice that was being judged and in his throne. And he had his hand on the place where you should find righteousness, the religious aspects of all of Israel. And we know that in his day, when you went to find it, you found what? Wickedness. He's telling you what he observed. He's telling you what he was in charge of. Three thousand years later, it hasn't changed, has it? The very places that we expect to find these, we find nothing but wickedness. Think of the pla- think of the places on our planet today. First of all, where should we be able to find justice today? In the courts, the very institutions that claim that justice is uh, meted out here, it's found here. Now, I'm not knocking the courts themselves. I'm not knocking the concept, of course. I just want to make an illustration, if you will. So there's a concept, a most fundamental concept in our justice system that says anyone accused of a crime is what? Innocent before proven guilty. Did you know you don't find those words in the Constitution? In all of the places that lays out the, uh, the, the jurisdiction of, of, of law, if you will, you don't find them. However, the Fifth Amendment says that no one shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without the due process of law. Due process, which includes a trial. By the way, it's supposed to be a what trial? What kind of trial? It's supposed to be a speedy one. And also in that trial, the burden of proof of guilt is laid upon who? The accusers. 
And they have to be proven guilty beyond what? Reasonable doubt. It lies with the state. So those are great concepts, aren't they? That's a great institution we're talking about. But fast forward a couple of hundred years, where now all of a sudden everyone living basically over the age of eight is carrying a little TV studio in their hand. Is it easy today to live out this most fundamental concept? Are you really innocent until proven guilty? If your act was supposedly filmed, edited, and uploaded to a million people in a matter of seconds? Is it easy to live this out? Do you see what the Kohelet is saying? I expect to find justice, but even in the places where the intent is, is, is good, where the intent was there, we just don't find it anymore, do we? How about righteousness? Where do you expect to find righteousness? In the church. That next precious institution where we should be able to find righteousness. People should be able to walk in the door today and find righteousness. Let me ask you something. Have you lived out every act and deed of righteousness that was revealed to you this week? And if you say yes in that same vein, do you have it on somebody's uh, TV studio? Is it on some video on somebody's phone? We can't give it to them either, can we? Which, by the way, if we can't be righteous, we're in the right place, aren't we? I like to tell people, check your hypocrisy at the door. Check to see that you're a hypocrite and then come on in. Because that's where we are. That's who we are. Sometimes considering that in any Christian anywhere can give a testimony to millions of people just by uploading a particular video, I wish most Christians would keep their mouths shut. I heard a preacher a while back using the Titanic as an illustration. And he pointed out that the designer himself boasted that God himself could not sink this ship. And then the preacher added, well, God knows a challenge when he hears it. And a lot of us did that. I'm, I'm, I'm not picking on you, man, but a lot of us laughed. And the reason that we laughed is because we felt pretty good to know that God would do what any one of us would do if we were mocked, that we would tear them down. But think about that for just a minute. Mock God. One prideful engineer mocks God, and he will sink your unsinkable ship, and he will kill 1,500 people in the most horrible deaths possible. And sometimes we can't figure out why nobody wants to follow God. Our God. We forget the fundamental premise about not being God. So when we ponder and think and try to explain passages like this, 
The Kohelet tells us, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for he's appointed a time for every matter and for every work. What do you, whoa, hold on. Why does he have to judge the righteous? The righteous, uh, by very nature, should be right. They shouldn't have to be judged. The Kohelet knows of who he's speaking, right? He's speaking of people who believe that they're righteous, who think that they're righteous. who don't have the source of actual righteousness. Judge, execute Satan's. Judge the righteous, judge the wicked. Every matter, every work under the sun, no one has reason to be boasting in this room. Amen? The collector of teachings to the assembly, Solomon is saying, no one has reason to boast, not from what I've witnessed, not from my throne. See, even righteous people under the sun have a problem. They're what? They're human. They're sinners. Some things they've, they've we've, uh, we who profess to be righteous, some things we've polished up to look real good on the outside, but what's going on inside? What did Jesus call us? You whitewashed what? Tombs. Just pop open a tomb and take a sniff. It looks nice and polished on the outside, but just pop it open and take a whiff. I said in my heart with regard to human beings, with regard to humanity, that God is testing them to show that they are but what? That they're but animals. Hold on a second. No, no, no. I read Genesis. I, I know that I'm not an animal. I know that I have a, a relationship with God that most animals don't. But the Kohelet is saying for the fate of humans and the fate of animals is what? It's the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over the animals for all is what? All is useless. We die together. All go to one place, all are from the dust, all return to dust again. Who knows whether the human spirit goes upward and the spirit of animals goes downward into the earth? Created in the image of God, yes. But we die like what? We die like animals. All go to one place. Breath may be from God, but the breath has to leave the body and the body goes to the same place that our dying pets went to. Preacher might be saying also that the reason we suffer the same fate as these animals is because more than once on a lot of occasions we lived like them too as well as dying like them. So what to do? Should we wring our hands? Should we worry? I came up with a new word for you. Should we pessimize? Should we live in the act of being pessimists? All this he concludes, all that he said. Even saying that we die like animals because sometimes we live like animals. So I saw that there's nothing better, that all should enjoy their work, for that is their lot. 
Who can bring them to see what will be after them? I pointed out last week that one of the things that that hits me about Ecclesiastes is that the reason why it's so appealing to me as a fallen human is that he's doing just what we all should be doing. He's laying it all on the line. He's coming right out and, 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 and not soft-soaping anything. He's telling you exactly who he was, who he is, all that he did, right and wrong. And then said, you know what? I've got nowhere to go with this. I'm gonna die like my dog. I need to take it somewhere. And in the end, he takes it to God. See, and here is the reason why I think that a pessimist has an advantage over everybody. Because a pessimist tends to realize the worst. When it comes to me, the reason I'm a pessimist is that I have no faith in fallen humanity. I'll say that again. I have absolutely no faith in fallen humanity. And the reason that I don't is because I know my own humanity. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about me. And in a way, the Kohelet isn't really talking about us. He's talking about him. And as he talks about him, I recognize myself more often than not, more often than I want to admit in the Kohelet's words. And here we are. So what he's actually saying here is just be who you are. Are you a sinner? Yes, own it. Because until we do, we don't realize what we need to be saved from. I think that's the advantage that pessimists have over everyone. They know exactly who they are. They know they've got nowhere to take it. Be who you are. I have to apologize, last week I never brought it around to our scripture reading. Ed Ed read our scripture reading and set it up for us beautifully and I never brought it back around to that. But David was caught red-handed. Nathan uh, hears everything that he's done from God and Nathan uh, just catches him red-handed. You are the man. He he allows David's anger to to well within himself and David's self-righteousness wells up saying, who is this guy? Who is this lousy shepherd that is, that is doing this to, to this poor little lamb? You bring him to me. And as soon as he says that, Nathan says, you're, you're the one. You had a lamb that was under your care and you abused her, you raped her, and you killed her husband who was one of your most loyal soldiers. And what did David do? Did he try to put on his royal robes? Did he try to explain how how big a burden it is to be carrying this throne? Did he try to do any of that? He looked at Nathan and he said, I have sinned before the Lord. Then Nathan said, okay, you're not gonna die. Will there be consequences? There's consequences to David's household for the next thousand years. Yes, there will be consequences. But what he did at that moment was lay it on the line. He was exactly who he was to be. 
And until he realizes that, until he understands that, that that is exactly the animal that he is, then he does not know what he's asking, Bev, when he's asking to be created a new heart. God doesn't want to constantly remind us of how bad we are. God just wants us to be authentic. He just wants us to know exactly what he's willing to do for us. And if we don't carry that away, exactly being able to be authentic, to be just who we are, then we never understand what's been done for us. We don't understand the grace that's been given us. And unfortunately, if we don't understand the grace that's been given us, it's impossible to give it to somebody else. We will constantly be giving it away with strings, constantly be giving it away with provisions, constantly be giving it away with rationalizations and justifications. I thank you, oh Lord, I'm not like that tax collector over there. How do we reach tax collectors if that's what we believe the good news is? We don't reach tax collectors until we realize that we are them or that we're worse than them. Rabbi Akiva once said that when you come to meet God, he will never, he will never ever ask you why you weren't King David. He'll ask you, why weren't you just Moshe the shoemaker? I created you to be Moshe the shoemaker. Why weren't you just him? I never wanted you to be King David. I already had one of those. It includes our falling short, our triumph, our tragedy. Weak or strong. He wants us when we've fallen. He wants us when we're, when we're absolutely guilty, looking up from the mud. And he wants us when we are relatively clean. He wants us just to be who we are. Just be you. Just understand your lot. Our scripture reading was, was Peter being addressed by Jesus. Jesus uh, asks him, he says, he says do, do you love me? And Peter is carrying that guilt, he's carrying that weight that, that he denied him not just once, but he denied him three times, the leader of the disciples, the man, the one who was going to get it done, the one who was supposed to lead this mission to the world. And, and, and Jesus comes and says, do you love me? And actually, that, that when Peter answers back, he uses a different word for love than, than Jesus used, and I think he does it on purpose. Lord, you know that I love you. And actually, by the time he gets to the third one, he says that he's absolutely grieved when he says it. Why? Because he realizes the first two times he lied to him. And by the time he gets to the third one, he says, you know that I love you but you also know that I don't. You also know that I can't say it out loud in front of these guys. You know everything. And Jesus says, now we're talking. Feed my sheep. He didn't want perfect Peter. He wanted vulnerable Peter. He wanted fallen Peter. 
He wanted the Peter that can tell you that when you are at your absolute worst, when you are the animal that that you really believe that you are, that Jesus can come to you and touch you and that he can tell you, I know exactly who you are and I want you to go tell someone else what I've done for you. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Our Kohelet Paul points out to us, while we were weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, someone might actually dare to die. The animals that we are, we might actually die for somebody that may do something in the world. We may actually die for somebody that it would benefit for. We might actually die for a very, 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 very good person. We might. He doesn't even say that we will. He said we might. But we all know what he says about us. He proves his love for us, for while we were yet sinners, he died for us. The pessimist can constantly remind us of this. Pessimists can constantly remind us that we're the worst, but we were died for. Created in the image of God, but a corrupted animal like nature, and still our only hope is in Jesus and that he would die for us and give us his righteousness even while we were his enemies. Pessimist reminds us that we are but worms. I'm a worm, not a human, scorned by others, despised by the people. Yes, a worm, but also invited into the presence of God to talk about the reasons why we're worms. Let's argue this out, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be like snow. They're like red, like crimson. They shall become like wool. It's only in the presence of God and him inviting us into reason to argue this out. He invites the worms. His presence is what reminds us of who we are under the sun. At once a worm and at once created in his image and restored in his image, even though we still toil under the sun. Something only a pessimist knows, under the sun. The presence. Under the sun argues about how present God can be. Why we like Solomon. You know why we like Solomon? We like him because he's so bad that we don't believe that God could ever endorse or be present with him. That's why we like him. We are like the Pharisee that stands there and says, I may not be perfect, but man, at least I'm not like Solomon. But I do wish I had a little bit of his, you know? And we think about Solomon, we think about why he was chosen. We think about him at the beginning. And I've had people actually say, well, God gave him everything in the beginning because he was good, and then he went bad. Really? Really? Have you read 1 Kings? Solomon made a marriage alliance. It's the first thing that he did, the very first thing that he did. He made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The first three things that the king feels he needs to do is to build him a house. 
that he could begin to put his wives in. And then he says the people were sacrificing where? At the high places. And you may say, well, Greg, he hasn't built the temple yet. Where are they supposed to sacrifice? The tent is still there. It's parked right outside. But everyone is sacrificing at the high places, the places where all the pagan altars are. No house had yet been built for the name name of the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David. Only he sacrificed and offered incense at the high places. The king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the principal high place. Solomon was so good that God chose him to be king. He's worshiping at the pagan altars when God comes to him. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night and asked, what should I give you? The gift of wisdom, all of that, comes to somebody who is worshiping as a pagan and worshiping as an Israelite at the same time. God says, I know who you are, but I'm gonna put you on the throne. What do you want me to give you? He brings everything to pass precisely at its time. He puts eternity in their mind, but without man ever guessing from first to last, all the things that God brings to pass. That which is already has been. That which is to be already is. And God seeks out what has gone by. I wanna thank Alex and Pat and Miriam for leading us in the hymn. It's a favorite hymn of mine, much to the consternation of our musical director. For some reason, she has a problem with this hymn. I love this hymn. And I usually only choose it when she's not here. I didn't realize she was gonna be here today. But I love it for what it says. I love it for being cleansed beneath the flood of that blood of that fountain is all we've got. And I've always loved it, but it meant even more to me when I found this out. In his book, Searching for the Invisible God, Philip Yancey tells us this. He says, I visited the home of William Cowper. Cowper, by the way, is the one who composed this hymn. He wrote some of the church's most popular hymns. Oh, for a closer walk with God. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. There is a fountain filled with blood. And for a time, he shared a house with John Newton, converted slave trader and author of Amazing Grace. As I toured the sites where Cowper lived, however, I realized how little grace he actually experienced. Tormented by fears that he had committed the unpardonable sin, hounded by rumors of an illicit affair, Cowper suffered a nervous breakdown, attempted several suicide, uh, attempted suicide several times, and was kept straight-jacketed in an insane asylum for his own protection. The last quarter of his life, he avoided church entirely. It may have been during this time when he wrote these words, where is the blessedness that I knew when I first sought the Lord? Where is the soul-refreshing dew of Jesus and his word? What peaceful hours I once enjoyed, how sweet their memories still, but they've left an aching void the world could never fill. 
Return, O holy dove, return, sweet messenger of rest. I hate the sins that made thee mourn and drove thee from my breast. The toil and the work under the sun, what it does to us. In the idealism of youth, I would have pounced upon Cowper as a typical Christian hypocrite, one who wrote about what he could not put into practice. Now though, as I ponder the grand works the poet left behind, I see his hymns as perhaps the only marks of clarity in a sadly troubled life. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die, wrote Cowper. I believe he meant these words with all his heart as he wrote them for others to sing. Though he felt little of it personally, he left lasting proof of redeeming love in his treasury of hymns. An artist like Cowper does not create in order to gain future glory, but rather to grapple, to attend closely, to express both pain and praise. He who, we who follow bestow the glory because out of the artist's struggle comes the abiding truth that speaks to our soul. God's grace may work that transformation in any of us, using the failures of the present as the very tools to shape us in God's image. As Cowper expressed it, sometimes a light surprises the Christian when he sings. It is the Lord who rises with healing in his wings. When comforts are declining, he grants the soul again a season of clear shining to cheer it after rain. What Cowper does for us in music, the Kohelet does for us in the book of Ecclesiastes. The words of the Kohelet, Ecclesiastes. He's us. That's why these words endure. That's why we say them at funerals. That's why we should say them probably more often, study them more often, and every day.